Well, Merry Christmas. It's great to see everybody. I hope you had a blessed time. I, I, uh, I love this time of the year. It just it gives us opportunity to share Christ with others, and I, I, I just love it. Uh, I hope Christmas every day is Christmas for you. But, but I have to tell you, I don't know about you, but I, some things trouble me in this season. A young lady in our church was told by her employer, she works at a local grocery store, that if she said Merry Christmas to anybody, she would get fired within the, within the store setting. I, I, I don't know if they do that in Jersey. They probably do, but, but before, before us probably. Th- those things bug me. Do they bug you? Yeah. You know, the, these times when you kind of feel like, why does our culture marginalize Jesus? When as we sang today, he is the hope of the world. Sometimes it's a little bit worse than that. They don't just marginalize. Our world at times literally opposes Christianity, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know where the whole Defense of Marriage Act and all those things are going, but folks, we live in a world, frankly, that's not a friend of grace. And it's a bit better in America. It's a bit worse around the globe, isn't it? I don't know if you ever read uh, Voice of the Martyrs. And, and just the kind of difficult situations that our brothers and sisters go through all around the world just because they love Christ. I mean, they're not trying to control anybody. They just want to live for Christ and share him with others. Like, what's so wrong about that? Did you ever wish that God would just step into this world and stop it all? Now, he will one day. We, 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 we know that. But there's times when we live under the pressure of the world around us where we just say, please stop. That's the case. And maybe you can understand what it was like for a young man by the name of Daniel back in the book of Daniel. What I'd like to do with you, all within 30 minutes, is try to run through the story of Daniel, the whole book, in just about 30 minutes. Now, we won't do every section. As you know, the book of Daniel is set up with six stories and four prophecies. And and we're going to focus mostly on those four stories. What would it be like um, to take a 15, 14, 15-year-old, we don't know exactly how old Daniel was, probably around that age, Connected to the nobility. And in 605 BC, Daniel is taken as a young man, along with some other Jews, transported a thousand miles to Babylon. And, and I mean, I, I don't know what this would be like, the, the, the pressure. Here you are, you are an oppressed nation. You're from Israel. I mean, you are under the boot of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. He has the entire world controlled by him, or, or, or at least of the eastern, eastern section. And, and so you have these young men that are brought, we don't know how many, maybe 50, 60, 70 young men are brought from Israel. They're put down, and they're going to be trained in the ways of the Babylonians. What kind of pressure is that for you? He's renamed 
bunch of things. He has to be educated along the, uh, by the Babylonian customs and so forth. And then they have this one other thing that the king means well with. He wants them to eat from their table. The best food in the whole world. I mean, pork. Like, you can't imagine pork. I mean, tasty stuff. But there's a problem, isn't there? Daniel's a Jew. And he can't eat that meat because it was sacrificed to false idols. And a whole bunch of issues are troubling him. And, and so what do you do? The problem is, besides Daniel and three other young men, all other 50, 60 young men from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem they just all enjoyed that food. And it, it, you could just say, it's so nitpicky. You, you, you're in this nation, Daniel. Look, after all, your parents aren't around. God's forsaken your land, hasn't he? Why stand for God? But Daniel wasn't like that. Daniel was a man of faith. And as just a young teenager put in that particular situation, he said, I, I don't care what other people do. I have made a commitment, Daniel 1.8. Daniel makes a covenant with his heart. He says, I will not dishonor my God. I will be faithful to him, even though I don't understand what's going on around me exactly. You know one of the things I found to be really interesting? If you turn over to Daniel chapter 1, a couple weeks ago, I, I, we're doing a, doing a series on Daniel back in my church. I'm doing, working through the book with, with Sunday school, so you're kind of getting the condensed version here. But I was really interested. I had never noticed this before reading through Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, God is the subject of three sentences in the entire book, first chapter. And each time God is the subject, the verb is identical. And I find this to be really fascinating. Look, uh, look at, if you would, at verse 2. And now, in my translation, the text says, The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, over to Nebuchadnezzar. But, but it's literally the word give. And so what you find is the first time God is mentioned, subject in Daniel 1, God gives the king of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. When you travel a little bit farther in the text, um, look at verse, uh, verse 9. This is the second time you find it. The Bible says, and God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the eyes of the chief uh, official. Again, it's the word God gave. And then as the story continues and these men stand for God and do the right thing, the Bible says, and God gave them abilities above everybody else. You know what struck me as I was reading that? At a time when a young man could say, where is God? Our nation is being destroyed. We're under this peg. Why is a pagan king who doesn't serve Jehovah, why is he in control? And you could think all kinds of things. And the storyteller, the inspired storyteller, tells us all the way through chapter 1, God is the one that gives. God gives a nation away. God gives Daniel favor. And God blesses as he chooses fit chooses and he wants you to realize when you get done reading Daniel chapter 1 that God is God so Daniel unbeknownst to what God is doing behind the scenes goes to this chief official and says um, would you mind if I didn't eat this food 
And, and he had already found favor in this guy's eyes. Not enough for this guy to change his mind because he still says, are you nuts? <laughs> I mean, Daniel, I like you, but um, if you don't look good, if you look pale, my head comes off. So what's Daniel do? He goes to another guard. He says, um, would you just try it for 10 days? And God blesses those young men so that they look even better than everybody else. And at the end of all that, he turns around and blesses them. And I want you to notice something. God gave them wisdom above all the other individuals. This is something else that really struck me as interesting. Look, if you would, at the very last verse of chapter 1. Notice what it says. It says, Daniel remained there in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. I don't know. I, I used to read that and think to myself, oh, that's just an historical note. You know? Here's a guy that comes from, from about the time he's 15, and he's going to live all the way into his 80s. But do you know what I was thinking? I was reading that recently. Think about this, folks. Here is a young man that stands with God. God takes him from Judah and puts him right in the middle of, middle of the most powerful nation in the world. And you know what the text tells us? Daniel will outlive that entire world empire. That world empire will come and that world empire will go and Daniel will go right into another kingdom, Media, the Median Persians. Isn't that amazing? Just a young man plucked right there and Daniel's going to outlive that whole Babylonian empire as a statement of the greatness of God. Chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Now, he's no dummy. Calls his advisors. He said, hey, guys, I had this dream, and, like, it big-time troubled me. Can you tell me what it means? And they say, sure, king, tell us what you, what you dreamt. He said, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to pull one of those off on me. Because you can make something up. Now, you tell me what I dreamt, and then give me the interpretation. Oh, man, that wasn't real good. I mean, that's, I mean, you don't want it that way, you know. So they said, no, no, king, now look, look, king, nobody can do that. You would need the gods themselves here for that thing to happen. King got ticked off and he said, you know what? If you guys are that worthless, I'm going to kill all of you, which would include Daniel. <laughs> and Daniel hears about this and he says, look, just give me one night. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'll pray about this, this thing. And they do, and sure enough, the next day he comes walking in there and Daniel says, King, I know what you, what you uh, dreamt and I can tell you exactly what it means. And he goes right through. Remember, he describes a statue, statue of gold and, and then silver and then of bronze and then of iron and clay. And he, he kind of goes through the whole thing. And you know what he says? He says, the God of the universe wants you to know who's in control. So he's not only protecting us right now where we are in Babylon. He is literally telling you, king, what's going to happen with the Medes and Persians and with the Greeks and with the Romans. Nebuchadnezzar hears this whole thing and thinks, wow. His big introduction to the God of the universe, the only true God. And when you get to the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar falls back and says, this is a great God. Now, he doesn't yet say this is the only God. He's just saying this is a really great God. 
We've got our gods too here in Babylon. And I've often struggled. You know, there's a lot of stories that could have been recorded to us in the book of Daniel from Daniel's life. Why these six? You know? I mean, there's other traditions. I mean, there's other Jewish stories called the story of Susanna and Bell and the dragon. All stories that tie in around the time of Daniel. You read about them in what we call the Apocrypha. So there's a lot of stories around, and I don't know if they're true or not or what, or whatever the case may be. But why these six? If there's all kinds of stories they could have told, why are these six put in the Scripture? Chapter 3. And I don't know the time frame. The Greek translation of the Old Testament tells us that chapter 3 took place right around the time when Israel was, the nation Jerusalem was being destroyed. But we don't know that for sure in the Hebrew text. So all I know is this. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this incredible statue. The gold part of it represented who? Nebuchadnezzar, right? And at some point between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar got this idea that, you know what? I think the Babylonian kingdom is going to go on and on and on. So he makes a statue totally of gold. 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. And he tells all of his officials, I want you guys to come down and bow down before this thing. And it's his way of saying, this will never end. Babylon will go on and on and on. The gold will continue. And it really was an in-your-face before God. It really was. And maybe it happened at the time that Jerusalem was finally destroyed. I don't know. It happened sometime. But regardless, that's how he's thinking. And here's what's fascinating, folks. You know what happens. When you read about the first seven verses of chapter 3, it's really boring. Because you know what it says? It says, call all the officials. Right? All the officials come. All right, now, tell them when you hear all these instruments to fall down. So they heard all these instruments and they fell down. And you think, like, what kind of story is that? Until, here's the problem. We know of at least three young men that wouldn't bow down, right? And I, you say, where's Daniel at this point? I don't know. Maybe he's off on a trip somewhere, a special emissary for the king. But he doesn't appear at this point. Just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know what happens I've often thought with this story, who really gets burned up in chapter 3? It's not the three. Those three are ushered in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the Bible says he is as angry as you can possibly imagine. He looks at them and he says, look, I'm going to give you one more chance. You see that fiery furnace over there where we probably made the gold and the bricks and everything else and did all the smelting and all? You see that over there? You will be thrown into that if you don't bow down before the statue of me that I've made. You got it? They say, King, we want to carefully answer you. You better carefully answer it, King. <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to be really careful. Um, King, we want you to know, because he, he makes this statement. He says, what God can deliver you from me. He says that very thing. <laughs> that was a bit of a mistake on his part. And they said, King, we want you to know our God is able to deliver us. We believe he will. But if he doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. We will not bow down. 
<laughs> and then the Bible says he became so angry that his face kind of contorted. Have you ever seen that? You know, where people really, really are upset with you, and it's like, I mean, I don't know what he did exactly, but I mean, I mean, his, his, his color changed, his you know, you, kids, you know what happens with your parents sometimes? You know, when, when they've told you for the seventh time, turn off the TV and come up for supper. You know when it hits that decibel. You think like, I better go up now or like I'm in big trouble. But anyway, it, for Nebuchadnezzar, it went way beyond that. And, and I've often thought how kind of stupid he was at this point. I, I, look, I don't mean to be sadistic, but I want you to think about this. If I wanted to fry you, and, and I don't, of course, but if I did, would you turn the heat up or down? I don't know. I think you turn it down, let it sizzle a little bit. That's kind of how it works. But he's not thinking logically at this point. He's so tipped off. He's saying, stoke that baby. I mean, make it just as hot as it could possibly be. And, and the, the, the ones I feel sorry more, for more than anybody else in this story are those poor guards. I mean, you know, those guys are just like doing their job. They get up there and they get too close and man, they're gone. They're just dead. And the Bible tells us that he takes those three guys, he throws them in, they fall down, they're all bound up in their nice outfits. And How many guys did we throw in there, he asked his advisors? Well, three. <laughs> I see four in there. And Nebuchadnezzar totally changes, doesn't he? And now this guy who was demanding and controlling comes over and asks them, guys, would you mind coming out for a second? <laughs> Perhaps we could have a discussion. Because there's a fourth one in there, and it's, it's one like the Son of God. I mean, it is an angel. There's something going on in there. I, you know. And they come out, and you know what he says? The same guy earlier in the chapter that said, you know what? What God can deliver you? Now says... The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can deliver. And the man is humble before the great God. You know what I love the text? You read the text. It's really cool. When, he, when they come out, all the advisors standing around go up and they look at the men. And the, and the Bible says they look at their hands. And, you know, you've been too close to a flame where it's kind of singed your, uh, the hair. They can't find any hair that's singed. And they look at their clothes. They look fine. They even smell them. And they don't even smell smoke. And, and it's God's way of saying, you wouldn't even know that they were in there when I got done with this whole thing. And Nebuchadnezzar is humbled before God. Chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And he calls Daniel in this time. He's learned his lesson. Daniel says, King, I have a, I'd rather not have, I, boy, I hate to have to say this to you, but here's what it is. You, uh, you're going to exalt yourself above God. And for seven years, he's going to humble you like an animal. And we don't, we do know the time frame. Nebuchadnezzar hears, and I'm sure coming out of that experience, he says, man, I'm going to really be good about this one. You know, I, I've blown enough times. I built a statue. I, like, I think I learned my lesson, but he doesn't. And about a year later, the Bible tells us, chapter 4, 
Nebuchadnezzar is looking out over Babylon. And look, in all fairness, from a human perspective, he had every right to be as cocky as you could possibly imagine. I mean, it was an impregnable city. You could, you could drive chariots along the top of the walls, double walls. It was impregnable. Gorgeous hanging gardens. The river Euphrates running right down in the midst. It was beautiful. And all the palaces and the gold. And, and he looked down and he said, isn't this Babylon which I have made? And God said, that's it. And for seven years, he was like an animal. And I'm told that if you go to some uh, sane asylums, you can find people who think they're animals. I mean, they'll bark. And it was one account. This goes back, oh, I don't know, 60, 70 years. About one individual who literally lived outside. Thought he was, I think, can't, I can remember if he thought he was a cat or a dog. Doesn't matter, but it was something. And uh, just literally in the wintertime, stayed outside. And, and survived somehow. And whatever, ha whatever, for a period of seven years. And I have often wondered, how do you cover this one up politically? You're like, hey, where's the king? Well, he's, he's out back. Well, what's he doing? He's, you know, he's, he's grazing. I don't know. What do you say? I, I don't know what you do at that point. But somehow, I mean, they had to cover their bases, you know, for a seven-year period of time. I really did. I, they did it. Be the reason I know that because the guy was restored at some point. So somebody's covering for him, you know. And when he gets back in chapter 4, he puts out a statement for the entire world to know. He says, I want you to know something. There is a God whose kingdom will never end. There is a God who rules over the affairs of men. I am nothing but a pawn in his hand. He is the one true God. And Nebuchadnezzar has learned the lesson. Unfortunately, his descendant hasn't. Chapter 5 picks up about 20 years later. With a man by the name of Belshazzar, who's now ruling. Belshazzar, I mean, I, I've often wondered about this. And the other thing we know is Daniel at this point is kind of on the back burner. I mean, like if you're the king and you're going to call in your officials, 540, 539 B.C., you don't call in Daniel anymore. He's old. I mean, the guy's 80. What can you do when you're 80? I'm teasing. I mean, all kinds of things. Look what happens with Daniel. I better be careful. I'm 50. I'm, I'm moving in that direction, right? I better watch what I say. But, but anyway, so he's on the back burner. He's an 80-year-old man. Belshazzar is going to have a banquet like he's never happened. He, here's, we know historically something. This is really strange. The Medes and Persians have already beat the Babylonians outside of the city. It was a major, major, major defeat. And on that very night, he has one of the biggest banquets you can possibly imagine for all of his nobles. A thousand of them come in. And I suppose it's because he's trying to encourage the troops. But you know what else he thought? Babylon itself cannot be conquered. We have a double wall. You'll never get through our walls. It's impossible. So that night he has this banquet. And they need some utensils to drink from. And here's where he made his serious error. Way back in chapter 1, the Bible tells us that God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take the utensils from the temple 
to Babylon. And here you are in 539 B.C. Belshazzar is sitting there. And he's saying, let's have a banquet. Those Jews, they're nothing. We can violate their God. Bring the utensils from the Jerusalem temple that we have here. We'll drink from those. That's what he does. And they start partying it up. And they're as drunk as a bunch of sailors, you know, just wiped out. When all of a sudden, the Bible says there's this, there's this wall. It's like a white wall in the background. And the lamps, they've got, they've got the lights there. So it's very, very clear. All of a sudden, all you see, I mean, it sounds like something you'd see in some spooky movie, you know, Friday the 13th or something, whatever. But, but all of a sudden, what do you see? You, all you see is a hand. Mini, mini, tekel, uparsen. Right on the wall. <laughs> and... The Bible says this king is so scared, his knees start just banging together. I mean, he is just scared. Calls in his officials, like, I don't normally see hands appear and write stuff like that on my wall in the middle of a banquet. Could you please tell me what it is, what, what's going on here? And you know he's concerned. I mean, they've just had a big loss outside of the city. And his guys come in and they say, man, we don't have a clue what that means. I mean, they're, that, they're just wait terms, you know. I mean, I, I, I don't know what that means. And the Bible says then he becomes even more scared. The queen hears about the commotion because everybody's upset. She comes in and says, you know, there's a man who was very, very important during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. His name was Daniel. Yet, he's in exile from the nation whose utensils you're drinking from right now. Maybe you ought to bring him in. So he does. And he brings him in. He says, look, uh, never, look, uh, look, Daniel. My name's Belshazzar. I'm second in control. My dad's in control outside of the city. I'm in control here. You help me with this one. I'll make you third ruler of the whole nation. And Daniel says, keep it, man. Keep it. I don't want any of that stuff. But I will tell you what it says. You've been weighed. You've been found wanting, and you're going to lose your kingdom. And that very night, the Medes and Persians were brilliant, up above the Euphrates River. They made it look, according to some of the Herodotus and some of the ancient writers, they made it look like they were making um, siege towers. That's what he says. And while they were trying to, so the Babylonians were saying, oh, they'll never be able to besiege our, our walls. But what they really were doing were, was they were actually diverting the water. And just at the right time, just at the right time, the, the soldiers were able to get underneath that river, get in, open up the gates, and Babylon was taken by the Medes and Persians. Most of the citizens didn't do anything but turn, turn themselves over to Darius and his troop. But here's what's fascinating to me in Daniel 5. When Daniel stands before Belshazzar, you know what he says? He goes back and he recounts chapter 4. He says, Belshazzar, you knew everything that God had done. You knew how he had humbled your grandfather. You knew all of that. And you still went against him and went into his face the way you did. And for that, it's over. Daniel 6. Darius takes over. Daniel was made... 
There's three top guys in the government, and Daniel's one of them. He's in his 80s. But Darius isn't stupid. <laughs> Darius sees the value of this man. And because he does such a good job, Darius wants to make him number one directly underneath Darius himself. You know what happens. People get jealous. And they try to connive, how are we going to beat this guy? How are we going to figure this out? Hey, we'll find out something unethical that he does. The man doesn't do anything unethical. He is absolutely as honest as the day is long. And they talk and they talk and they talk and they say, you know, this man is known for one thing above everything else. He loves his God. So if we're going to get him, we have to get him there. So they come up with a brilliant plan. They come in before Darius and they say, Darius, oh, king, live forever. Be careful when they say that because they're always buttering you up. But they, oh, king, live forever. And Darius says, what can I do for you guys? Well, let me, I'll just uh, paraphrase here a little bit. He said, they say, no, you know what? You've just taken over the Babylonian kingdom. There's all these gods and, and all these kinds of things. What we think we should do for just for 30 days, for one month, is let you be the mediator of all the gods. So whenever anybody wants to pray, they've got to pray through you. Now, King, this is a good thing because this will unite, unify all the gods under you and connect you to all of them. And so you'll, you'll be the priest of priests. It'll work out really great. Politically, it's a great move. What do you think? Yeah, sounds like a really great idea. So he signs it, the laws of the means, for 30 days. You don't pray to any other god or any other man through any man. It's all through me. What kind of way to unite the nation, you know? Good idea. The problem is, Daniel prayed to God three times a day, didn't he? The Bible says he went back to his house, flipped open his window toward Jerusalem, and he started praying. And they were ready. These conspirators were ready. They came in, they caught him praying. They came back before the king and they said, you remember that edict you signed? Oh yeah, I sure do. It was a good idea. Well, Daniel violated it and just that fast, he thought to himself, what have I done? He knew they had duped him. He knew it. So the Bible says until the evening, he tried to figure out some way to turn it back and there was no way to turn it back. So they came back to him again, these conspirators, and they said, you did make a law, and you're bound by the law, king. I mean, it was, I mean they, were, they were putting pressure on him. So he came, and he's ready to throw Daniel in. Actually, he's thrown Daniel into the lion's den, and as he's throwing him in, because he doesn't want to do this. He says, Darius, I, he says, Daniel, I really believe that your God is able to deliver you. Now, the reason I don't know that he really believed that is because he stayed up all night worrying about it. You know, but he threw him in. They put the stone over. He put his seal on. The Bible says he went back and he stayed up all night. Didn't eat anything. Went out for entertainment. And he's all upset. You know, comes back the next day to take over the, take the stone off. Daniel, was your God able to deliver us? And he's just like waiting. Will I hear anything? And Daniel says, yeah. He shut the mouths of the lions. And I'm safe. Now, that was great news for Daniel. It wasn't very good news for the conspirators. Because the Bible tells us that Darius took the conspirators and their families, which is a terrible thing. We think that's not fair. So they did it in antiquity because, you know, if you do something to a father, a son is going to grow up and he's going to have something against you too. So you wipe them all out. That's how they thought. I'm not, I'm not supporting it. I'm just telling you. And they took all, all those family members and they threw them in. The Bible says their bodies were crushed before they even hit the bottom. And Darius pulls back 
Here he is. Daniel has spanned the entire Babylonian Empire. And now he stands before Darius, and Darius has to say exactly what Nebuchadnezzar said, which is God is God. His kingdom will go on and on and on. It's the exact same thing Nebuchadnezzar said. And Daniel ends his book by giving us four prophecies that spans the time from Daniel clear through the time when Christ comes back as ruler of this world, folks. Isn't that great? So what does this text say to us? Do you ever feel marginalized? Oh, should I speak a word for Christ right now? Ah, Lord, if I do that, they're going to call me. This text would say, do it, folks. God is sovereign over all of history. And wherever you find yourself, God is God. And he calls you and I to merely faithfully be his people. By his grace, through his strength, we step out and we profess, we confess, we live, we love, we do. And we don't have to worry about history. Because God's going to take care of all that. In Hebrews chapter 11, both the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel in the lion's den is picked up again as he's sweeping through the history of the Old Testament, the writer. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But as he's sweeping through there in Hebrews 11, he says, let me tell you of the great acts of God. God had this way of stopping lions' mouths and, and keeping people from being burned. And he gives a whole series of things to show the exploits of God in Hebrews 11. You know what he does then? He then talks about a whole series of Christians who God didn't do any exploits for, who died and were martyred and were destroyed. Did God love the one group better than the other group? No. He loved them all. It was all part of his plan, which we can't fully understand. And Hebrews 11 says, look, walk with God. He may do a great exploit through you. He might not. He will use you either way. Just walk with him. And remember, at this Christmas season, when we quote some of those passages from Isaiah, like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, unto us a son is given. A child has been born, and you're going to call him Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. You know what? The Christ child of Bethlehem has come to be our Savior. But he is also our King. And one day, all the world will see King Jesus. And isn't it wonderful that we're on his side? So folks, I, I tell you, as you go into 2010, go with hope in your heart. Yeah, but Doug, you know what's happening to me at work. No, I don't. I, don't. I really don't. What's going to happen in our government? I don't have a clue sometimes. But I know who's on the throne. I was... Um, Reading something just over the weekend from Chuck Colson. I don't know if you ever get his uh, breakpoint stuff. I, they're short, they're quick, they're easy to read. I, I, I like them. And he sh sh shared a story that I hadn't heard about. That I thought was really, really powerful. Back in October of this year, 
in Pakistan, in Islamabad, at one of the one of the universities. I think it must be one that's primarily made up of women. A uh, fanatic Islamic bomber came in, strapped up with with bombs all around his body. He's got suicide bomber, and he was heading straight for the cafeteria where there was three, four hundred young young ladies, all Muslim. So a Muslim killing a Muslim. Well, we won't get into all that, but whatever. That's what he was doing. Two percent of Pakistan are the people who profess to be Christians. And um, they're given the most menial jobs in Pakistan. Garbage collectors, janitors, just the simplest thing. And as, and he's, as he's walking to the cafeteria, a young man by the name of Parvella, uh, make sure I get his name correctly, I'm sorry, Pervase. And his last name or, was Masid, named after the idea of Messiah, because he was a Christian, he wanted people to know about it. Stepped out in front of the man and refused to let him go by. And the bomber tried everything he could to get there, and he couldn't. So he blew himself up there and killed the Christian man along with himself. Three, four hundred young ladies were saved because of that man. So here you have a martyr, an Islamic martyr, right, trying to kill people when the real martyr was the Christian that loved three, four hundred young ladies for the name of Jesus Christ. That's Christianity, folks. That, that's a young man. He has a janitor's job. He's nothing. And they say the place where they buried him, it's a garbage heap. And you go there today, you see nothing but garbage around. But that's not how God sees him. Because that young man in an oppressive culture lived Christ before those people. How can we do any less? So go into 2010 knowing that our God reigns. He calls us to be his faithful people and leave everything else to him. Let's pray.